Hello and welcome to the Milk Digest podcast brought to you by the Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers. I'm Sarah Alderton and you are stuck with me as your host for today. So in today's show we are going to be discussing the topical subject of milk prices and specifically what farmers can be doing to better take control of their price. I don't know about you but I can't think of any other sector that has such limited control of the price of their produce. In recent weeks, because of the impact of restrictions brought in by coronavirus, we have seen farmers having to discard their milk because their processor has said they simply can't collect it. We have seen the spot price drop to just a few pence per litre, overall milk price cuts, as well as processors asking producers to reduce the volume they are supplying. But even prior to the pandemic, we have seen milk price cuts just come out of the blue. For these dairy farming businesses that have such high overheads, it's hard to understand how they can carry on when there is little certainty in the marketplace. I'm hoping today's guests are going to be able to offer some thoughts on what needs to be done to help dairy farmers get back in control and stop being under the grip of these processes. Our guests today are Peter Elvis, he's RABDF chairman and dairy producer. Peter, with his brother and father, run the family dairy farm and cheese making business Lycross Dairies. Peter believes in the need for more cooperation in the supply chain. We're also joined by RABDF Vice Chairman, Robert Craig, who runs two dairy farming enterprises in Cumbria. He's also a director of the farmer-owned dairy cooperative First Milk. It will be interesting to hear what his thoughts are on this. We've also got farm consultant Neil Rowe. He has over 40 years experience in the dairy and beef industry, is an award-winning farmer himself and Nuffield scholar. He has a reputation for innovation and sustainable farming and has spent the last few years looking at implementing milk vendor machines in the UK. Could this be a possible solution to help dairy farmers take better control of their price? Hmm. Now, I'm saying here that it's the dairy processors that seem to have an upper hand on dairy farmers and are controlling the milk price. But is that entirely true? Peter, perhaps uh, you can maybe kick off this discussion and help answer that question. Okay, thanks, Sarah. I think we need to be very careful about uh, just blaming the processors for um, issues within the supply chain because ultimately everybody within that supply chain needs to work together to be able to understand um, and maximise the value of the products that we're producing. I think key to that is the farmers as well, um, making an effort to understand um, what their customer is looking for and what their product is going to be used for, and then working together to try and maximise those values. Um, Without that understanding, it's very difficult to think that we can really maximise the value that we can extract from the marketplace. So I'm an avid believer that we need to um, get together, work together to maximise the value. So farmers pulling together to ensure they're meeting what their customer is looking for. And Peter, just on that point, do you think uh, farmers do have an understanding on what their customer requires and indeed, you know, really who their customer is? I'm 100% sure there are farmers out there that have a very good understanding of what they're they're doing. But also there are farmers out there who probably are not as aware. Um, um, But there is no right at the end of the day that just because we're producing a product, that there is someone out there that will pick it up and and give us good value for that product. So there's work to be done undoubtedly of of bringing everybody together to understand the marketplace better, um, to help ensure that we are doing the right thing for our customers and their customers and making sure that we can maximise that value of the milk we produce. 
And Robert, as a, as a dairy producer yourself, and obviously a director of First Milk, do you have an understanding of, you know, your product, where it's going and, you know, exactly what your customer requires? Yeah, well, thanks, Sarah. I think certainly is my role within First Milk, I have a, I have a really good understanding of, of sort of what makes the whole business model work and, uh, you know, my part that I play in that as a dairy farmer and also as a director. But but I think I think Peter's absolutely right. You know, um, it, it is as much up to farmers to make this work as the processes and it's easy to blame the processes but perhaps as a legacy here that we were we were so used to um relying upon the the mmb in the olden days to sort of uh, sort everything out once the milk had left the farm gate uh, it wasn't really of the interest of the farmer and there's still a bit of that going on I do, I do think that's changing now but um we've taken a long time to really mature as an industry and, and work really as an industry you know it's uh, even within the co-op, and less so now, but for a long time, it was a, a them and us situation where uh, the, the people that were running the co-op were seen as the old MMB uh, and the members were the, were the members and, and, you know, never the twain shall meet. But that is changing now. And I think it's possibly a generational thing as much as anything. We're seeing, you know, younger people coming into the industry and, and the realisation that, uh, you know, if we don't actually make this thing work and work more effectively, then no one else is going to do it for us. And um, certainly, why would the retailers do that? Uh, you know, if we don't play play our part in it. I mean, the the milk marketing boards are an interesting one, Robert, because when a lot of social media posts at the moment with what's been happening with coronavirus, there's been so many calls by people commenting, by the general public, by dairy farmers to bring back the milk marketing board and saying, you know, we need that. We that's going to give us a fair price. What would your thoughts be on that? Yeah, so it's it's understandable that those that are more severely affected by the current crisis would 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 tend to think that there's a better way of doing this because I mean it, it's very devastating for for some of these businesses that have been you know, really hard hit by this discarding milk and, and incredibly low milk prices. And I'm, I mean I'm old enough to remember that that most people weren't particularly happy with the MMB um, when the MMB was in existence. So so. It, it's difficult to, I mean, the grass always seems greener, doesn't it? And yes, there is possibly a better way of operating the industry than we've got at the moment, but we still have a bit of mileage in this whole crisis to work through. And those that have been affected now won't necessarily be those that are, that are affected longer term. We're seeing a, you know, a whole um, range of different consequences coming out of, of not just the domestic economy slowing down, but the the, the bigger, wider um global economy slowing down and I think that's going to affect other businesses in a, in, a, in a different way and it may be that those that were more severely affected at the beginning uh, you know in a year or so's time might actually be a lot less affected than other businesses that have that have got a different focus in a different yeah. market. So I mean for obviously those those businesses that have been affected I mean what or, or really for, for any dairy farming business I mean what what do you think farmers need to be doing I mean obviously Peter you've talked about you know we need to be more joined up I mean how do we go about doing that how do we start connecting farmers with their customer and getting them to understand their contract I think it's a difficult one um, to, to tackle straight away I think it really comes back to a realization that at the end of the day as dairy farmers we're a fairly small cog in a big wheel um, and that we need to be able to um, get people to work together. Now, farmers are, historically have been pretty poor um, generally at, at working together. There's been calls for um, more cooperative thinking and that sort of stuff historically, but very little 
um, in in the big picture has come of that. But but it's 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 about working together as an industry rather than working as a bunch of individuals just supplying product into a marketplace. So it, it it's going to require people to have a change of mindset if they want to come together to um, work as an overall uh, group to um, affect a significant change within the market. Um, and I think that's going to be the biggest challenge is is getting people to um, see the benefits of that and, and share sufficient information to make that effective. So so who does this, I mean, this is a, this is a question that's open to all of you, but I mean, who who kickstarts this? Who does this come down to trying to lead this? Is this the role of um, the AHDB to do to do this, to try and get farmers working together, get the, the industry working together? So, Sarah, I think I think um, it's taken a while for the cooperatives really to, 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 to make this thing work. Um, we're seeing a situation now whereby the main co-op seem to be uh, less affected by the current crisis. There seems to be more resilience within that business model. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not advocating that the entire industry needs to be cooperatively based, but we must be close to 50% of the milk now that's produced in the UK being sold and processed through a cooperative model. And that's a good place to be for the industry as, as a whole, because that, that gives a big chunk of our producers a real a real solid base for their businesses. Um, I mean, Pete's absolutely right. Farmers do need to learn how to work together. And, and, and um, you know, we've got a, a, an industry that's continually restructuring. So getting fewer into fewer and fewer and fewer hands. The milk that's been produced, um, the average herd size growing, productions are, are rising. So I think we're getting there slowly, but that doesn't necessarily mean we've all got to work from a cooperative base. Um, if you look around the world, you do see that most, um, if not all, major milk producing countries their milk is marketed primarily as primary producers from a cooperative base. So it is a really good model for primary producers uh, to sell their product. And, and so going forward, do you think we're going to see more dairy cooperatives being set up? Well, I think I think it's good to see the ones that we've got um, being resilient and, and, and growing because there's no doubt that we're growing at first milk. Uh, you know, we're we're um, we're we're. we're we're, we're resilient at the moment. The, the business model that we've got set up is, is working particularly well. You know, we've got both domestic and export focus. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it, it's doing, compared to where we've been in the past, it's um, it's doing well. But um, whether whether that will continue to grow, it, it really depends on, on where we go. It's really, it's really difficult to predict, certainly the, the short to medium term, never mind the long term. So um, quite where this crisis leaves us in terms of, the sort of re- retailer engagement and the relationships we can build with our consumers in the UK, it's really difficult to predict at this point. I mean, for those farmers that, you know, they're, they're, they're sitting there and, you know, one minute they, they're getting 25 pence per litre and then they, they're called to a meeting and it's dropped down to like 23 pence per litre. I mean, do you think that's morally right that that should be allowed to happen? Because obviously, you know, they're, they're businesses that have invested in their business. They, they'll have probably loans taken out. They've got big overheads. I mean, it, should that should this be happening in, you know, in this day and age? Because I, I can't think of any other industry where, where that would happen. Well, I think I think that's where you need to understand how unprecedented the current situation is and the crisis that we're in. No doubt 
the cooperative model does protect its members to a certain extent from the you know the full effects of of where we're at if if as a co-op we were to lose or or, or yeah lose um, the amount of milk going into one of our brokerage customers because of the crisis and and out of home and food service then then we can protect the wider membership because we've quite a diverse business but but if you're actually if you've got a contract with a smallish processor that is is totally focused on out of home catering restaurant market and they lose that market then it's very difficult for that business never mind the dairy farm they're basically their business has been wiped out um and you could argue yes if you put legislation in place to protect the producer i mean the market's gone you can't book the market the market is gone so there's there's ultimately the processor goes bust and then the farmer loses out in any case i mean it's, it's incredibly unfair um what is happening and no one wants to see milk being thrown away but there's there's other than everyone joins a co-op there's no other way of doing that because legislation whilst it might um put the risk back onto the processor uh the processor just goes bust anyway and then basically you've, you've got a farmer or a group of farmers left without a purchaser i mean how easy is it for you know you say obviously farmers joining a co-op i mean those farmers that have been affected might be thinking i wish i was you know a first milk supplier i mean how how easy is it for them to just say okay actually you know i want to switch try and switch contracts and, and go and supply someone else that's maybe got more uh, fingers in different pies so, yeah so all contracts have got got terms uh, and and it isn't you can't unless you can uh, unless you can prove a sort of force majeure or or you've been treated badly, you can't necessarily leave a contract sort of overnight. But as long as you adhere to the leaving terms, you know, people can get out of the contracts they're in. Whether or not there's a contract anywhere else for you is that, again, um, you know, it's a very difficult one because of the unprecedented nature of where we're at. Uh, uh, you know, we're we're very focused on our, our membership base at the moment. It isn't just so easy for us just to welcome loads and loads of new members we've, we've got to match that new milk supply with the ability to turn it into value and a relationship with an ultimate customer at the other end so it's a it's a process of of building all all of those various parts of the chain to make it work it, it, um, it you know if we were to if we were to welcome in a whole load of new members without all the other parts of the chain in place then we would put our own business model at risk and our and our existing loyal membership at the same time neil you've been um been looking at um the dairy industry in the uk and um one of the areas you've been looking at i believe are, are milk vending machines and you know farmers maybe trying to diversify their businesses i mean do you think that's something we're going to see more of and and how viable is that for dairy farmers to do yeah i, th I think we're going to see a lot of uh, change i don't think the, the current model is is going to work going into the future um i, I mean I, I agree with a lot of what's been said i think there's there are major problems um much bigger than the relationship between the farmer and the and the uh processor uh you know the what the price of milk is set on a worldwide stage skim milk powder butter cheese etc uh it, it's very difficult to in 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 terms of a big business to go outside of that those parameters whereas if you're in a local supply chain connected to local businesses or direct to consumer you can charge a premium price and you get all of the margin whereas under the current contract model uh you're getting a tiny fraction of the margin also with a very competitive price which is which is capped uh so 
it's very difficult to fix the model which is out there. It's broken. Too much power with the with the retailers. Too much focus on liquid milk. Uh, too few processors. Uh, it's very easy, I think. Uh, maybe I'm just a sceptical old farmer, but uh, you kind of imagine that somebody uh, in one of the retailers rings up their processor and says, oh, I think the price of milk needs to come down 2p a litre. And the processor just rings up the farmers and says, I'm passing it down to you because um, we've got no room on our margins um, to take it. So I don't think you, you're going to get away from that. The UK has got fourth highest cost of production for milk in the world. That's a very difficult place to build an, an ex, a big export business from. Um, so I think for a lot of farms, getting out of that and trying to do something different um, may well be the answer for the future. You know, if we go back four or five years, there were uh, very few milk vending machines in the UK. Uh, it, it took a very long time to get it to take off. Uh, in the last two years, we're probably way over 400 now. Um, there's been a huge expansion in that business, and I think that will continue. It's not obviously there's a saturation point, um, and you can't have too many. It wouldn't work if everybody tried to do it. But there are lots of other possibilities as well, apart from uh, from just the vending machines. So, do you think on the back of you know coronavirus, do you think we're going to see more people, consumers maybe shopping more locally, supporting those smaller businesses, moving away from the supermarkets, and maybe as a result, farmers being able to supply a, a smaller business rather than a supermarket. Is that what you're saying, or? Yeah, I think I think, I think we are going to see that. I think the the experts at the moment are saying that it's normally around seven percent of the population are, are really committed to local food supply chains. At the moment, that seems to be somewhere between 25 and 30. And the jury's out as to how many of those we can hold on to after this, whether people will be driven by a shortage of cash to go back to the cheapest supplier or whether um, they want to hang on to their local supply chain. Uh, I think probably that 7% probably will turn into at least 10%, maybe 12 that will continue with a local supply chain. This is one, one for all of you, really. I mean, should dairy farmers... Um, obviously they need to know who their customer is but producing milk is you know all their eggs so to speak are in one basket should they be looking at trying to diversify their business into other areas so they're not just reliant on that one thing that they're producing I think diversification for any business is something that um, we need to look at um, because at the end of the day if you can spread your risk then if there is a volatile market situation like we've got at the moment then that is, um, you're just putting yourself in a safer overall financial position. But for some people, that might not be possible, depending on the location of the farm and that sort of thing. Um, you know, diversification isn't necessarily something that is, is readily available. I think what we also have to remember, though, is that the current crisis we're looking at is a one-off, hopefully. Um, and that, you know, um, the impact of coronavirus is something that has shocked the whole country or the whole world even. So so we have two, I think, distinct issues. One is the issue that we currently have um, caused by forces outside of normal markets. Um, the other is the, the broken market that we've been talking about. And I think one of the big key things here is um, for many years now, we've seen milk being used as a loss leader within um, supermarket supply chains. 
Um, and that in itself puts a base value of that product at a very low point. And I just question whether that base value being put in at such a low level is something that if there was a change in that dynamic, whether or not um, any of the other guys uh, here think that that would help raise the overall value of the milk market and that people would actually start to value the product. At the moment, it's not valued because it doesn't really cost a lot to put it on the shelf. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that, Pete. And I think it's unlocking that extra value within that supply chain that, that's got to be our focus, really. Um, just, just going back to the sort of diversified business model, and, and I absolutely agree, vending machines are, are a great idea, you know, not just for milk, but for other dairy products and other, other farm products. And, and But it does rely upon you being in the right place to do it, certainly half of the Pennines in Cumbria probably isn't the greatest place to sell milk from a vending machine, but, you know, I'm seeing it work very effectively in, in other parts, um, you know, closer to closer to sort of trunk roads, more densely populated areas. But, but actually, if you think about the cooperative model, the cooperative is the diverse side of the business that does all of that marketing for you. And, and I think that's perhaps why we're seeing uh, that particular, you know, the cooperative model being quite successful and resilient through the current crisis. And, um, you know, I think... Um, if, if you like, that's one of the major benefits of, of being a cooperative member is that uh, through all the governance structures and all the security that you've got with that in an evergreen contract, um, that's how a co-op should work. I wouldn't say that they've always worked like that, but certainly at the moment, uh, the, the co-ops in the UK seem to be working along that model fairly effectively. And Neil, what would you think about unlocking the, that extra value in the supply chain? The fundamental issue is that since Milk Marketing Board disappeared and then Milk Mark fairly quickly afterwards, milk has been sold as a loss leader um i think we also have to remember that quotas uh, were a way of keeping some power with the farmer because the farmer owned the quota and therefore had then had a choice as to where he sold his milk whereas now we've given all of the power to the uh, processor because quotas have been replaced by contracts to supply uh, and the farmer has no choice uh, and you're seeing in some of the big businesses are now they've got their favorite farmers who run very efficient businesses to a certain model and they're encouraging those to take over other farmers and we're going to see a lot more of that we're going to uh, processors are now going to decide who produces milk and who doesn't uh, it's it's no longer really a farm decision we've had this con this sort of focus on the liquid pint as being some special product that is unique to the uk and it's sort of held up there as a something that we must uh, defend and it's a disaster you know much better if we uh, stop producing liquid milk uh, and told the supermarkets to go and find it abroad. They might find it quite difficult. I don't think we're ever going to fix that. I, d I don't see at the moment there is a mechanism for fixing that low price of milk in supermarkets. So the one thing that might fix it is the supermarkets themselves might get fed up with doing it. Uh, I'm, I'm told it's their lowest margin per square foot of shelf space and one of the most difficult things to manage. So maybe they'll just get fed up with it and uh, decide to stop doing it. The vending machine thing has been interesting because it all started by an individual farmer having one vending machine on his farm and people driving to the farm. The new approach is now sites wanting vending machines. So at the moment, I've got 13 sites all asking me, when can I have a vending machine? Um, community shops, garden centres, all kinds of different businesses. Uh, so it's, a diff it's evolving into something different rather than just a farm with a vending machine. And, and maybe the answer is to keep less cows but to make more margin whereas for the last 
15 years, it's all been about getting more milk per cow and keeping more cows on the farm. Peter, what do you think? Do you think um, we're going to see, I think there's two points here. One that you made, Neil, was obviously that um, we're going to see bigger farms taking over some of these these smaller farmers, so less farmers, but bigger farmers. Do you think that's something we are going to see? Is that, is that a trend that we're, we're heading towards already? I think the the drive for um, ever lower production costs will push us down that route generally because um, with so many things, um, the larger, more efficient units can obviously achieve those end results. But I think also it requires more cooperation between the farmer and the processor to be able to manage the volume of milk coming forwards. Currently, to me, there doesn't seem to be a lot of joined up thinking within the marketplace for processors to turn around and say, right, this is the amount of milk that we think we're looking for for the next uh, 12, 18 months, two years, and have a, have a milk program in front of them like that so that, that we can tell farmers, no, we're reaching the limit of what we can add value to. If you want to produce more, then yes, we're going to get it at a lower value. You know, it's going to drag the market price down. A little bit more information traveling through the markets to allow people to be able to understand what the decision of putting another thousand cow unit here or there is going to be on the marketplace within their specific sector, within what their their customer is able to sell. You know, we cannot keep just adding cows, producing more and expecting to maintain value. We need to understand that market dynamic. Anybody want to comment on that, Neil? Do you want to pick up or Robert on that point? I, I was just on the, you know, does it does it mean that we're going to see fewer and fewer farms? I and mean, if you look back in history, is when my grandfather started farming, sort of early in the century, uh, dairy farmer numbers have halved and halved and halved, and every sort of ten to fifteen years we have half the number. So if you follow that line, and it's a very straight line. Uh, you know, within sort of 15 years or so, we're down to about 6,000 dairy farms. I don't see anything really on the horizon that's going to prevent that. We've got clean air legislation. We've got permitting of dairy farms. We've got elms coming in for for support payments and all of that. To cope with all of that, um, all, all the only the only leave you've got to pull as a dairy farmer when you don't have a lot of control over over the end value of your product is, is scale. And, and that's kind of where the industry's uh, done it. What's what it's done in the past, and that's what it'll have to do in the future. But on on the on the sort of vending machine versus milk sat at low value in the supermarket, that's all down to marketing. I mean, that's consumers are buying um, consumers are buying the story as well as the product. If you're buying milk from a vending machine, they're understanding the provenance. They can identify with the farm and hopefully the farming system that produced the milk. So, you know, we've got to learn a lot about marketing from why that's working. But, but an interesting question that I would raise is, you know, what happens in the future if, if that 7 or 8% of consumers that are using that method to buy milk now uh, is to grow? You know, how do we scale that up in the future? How does that business model work when 20, 30% of consumers want that? Because that's when it starts to sort of, it, it, it sort of slips into the retail model. And, and will, will, that, will that still work at retail level? Will consumers still understand that story and pay that extra when it's sat alongside um, milk on a supermarket shelf that's that's maybe 20%, 50% cheaper. What do you think, Neil? Well, I think what we're seeing at the moment is that we've, we've got a bit of a, a sweet spot, really. There, there are two things which uh, we haven't really talked about at all. One is the fact that the consumption of fresh milk around the world is falling. I think in America, consumption of, of liquid milk 
has fallen by 40% since 1970 and 20% since 19, uh, since the year 2000. Uh, and there's a similar pattern in Western Europe. So there's a massive drift downward of milk consumption. 90% of 10 to 20 year olds in the UK never put milk in a glass and drink it. Um, they might do a milkshake, but they never actually just drink milk as a, as a drink ever. Um, and just think, you know what that is for our future consumers going forward so we're we're overproducing milk we've got two things have come together i think one is the the rise of the vegan agenda which we haven't mentioned at all which has only just started and and that is going to give enormous pressure on the dairy industry and that has now got itself firmly hitched to the uh, to the climate change wagon um what i kind of uh, call the saint greta effect um and cows have now been the whipping boy for uh, for the cause of climate change. Um, we've got all that to come yet. So I think this is a really difficult thing. But what I saw very uh, recently is that it used to be just urban consumer, um, rural consumers that lived in the communities that were interested in, in a vending machine. That's really changed in the last uh, six months. And the big change has been plastic. Uh, and we've now connected with the urban consumer who actually wants above all else to get plastic out of their life and when they realize that dairy is one of the biggest forms of plastic that they can easily get rid of if you can offer them a, a way to use glass container which they keep bringing back and refilling it's a very easy argument to have with somebody um 80 of the people now that buy milk out of a vending machine their primary driver is nothing to do with the farmer or the cows it's because they want to get rid of the plastic. And I think, Neil, just to pick up on that, I think we've seen that as well with um, there seems to be more um, promotion and um, people maybe taking up milk rounds again. So getting that glass bottle delivered on their doorstep, part of it might be convenience, but I know speaking to, uh, you know, someone that saw a milk, you know, their milk ground expand dramatically almost overnight um, was the main call was actually on the back that they, yeah, to, they, they wanted glass instead of plastic. Um, so, uh, so now I think that's a, a really valid point. So to pick up on the, on the point of farmers trying to um, get, get more for their milk and, and processor and the farmer joining up there, maybe planning out yeah, how much milk they need for, for the next year ahead. And then, so the farmers are aware you know what they should be producing i'm guessing that doesn't happen at the moment or in most cases it doesn't so how do we get that to happen yeah i think i think it does happen i think you know i think businesses are aware of their requirements um whether it's well communicated i know certainly as a business we we manage our milk supply here um from the farm from our own milk and from from the milk we buy from other farmers we manage that um, and we're continuously looking forward to seeing what our sales forecasts are looking like and what volume we want coming in so that we can manage that and we can give the opportunity to people who want to change their supply volumes um, to, to work with us on this. So so it happens and I'm sure the big organisations are doing it as well because there's no way they could operate without doing it. It's really a question of how that's communicated to farmers and how it becomes effective so that farmers actually take action that if we if it looks like next year's milk volume is going to come forwards and we're going to be producing three or four percent more 
than we have a readily added value market to, that farmers are given that information so that they can take the decision. Do we want to take the milk at a lower value? Do we want to be paid the lower value for that milk? Or do we want to take action collectively to reduce the volume slightly, maintain the value, and therefore still maintain our income levels, um, but for producing slightly less volume? The only time three farmers get together is when two of them want to do over another one. Um, <laughs> trying to get that level of cooperation and then like in, big problem. Is, not, is, is really, really difficult. You know, a good, really good friend of mine said, I could commit the next year to teach a pig to play the piano. At the end of the year, all I'll have done is wasted my time and annoyed the pig. It's a, it's a great uh, aspiration to have. It, it seems to me the answer would be better if is a technological solution. If all the farms um, that were supplying a processor gave them access to their BCMS data and their um, herd data, it would be really simple for for a tech company to put together a cloud-based system whereby they would know exactly how many cows were on every farm when they were calving. uh, And it would be pretty straightforward to predict the daily uh, milk produced over the next year, even two years, if you add in the young stock simple thing to do it's just how do you ever get people to agree to do it well yeah that's pretty much what we've done at first milk actually with our first milk pledge so we've now got um i think up to half of our members now signed up to that and that includes exactly that that, that we do have access to bcms data so that we can it's another piece of the jigsaw puzzle if you like we can work out um you know how much milk is coming but but we also we also do business reviews so we understand more clearly, uh, you know, how uh, sort of aspirations, the business aspirations of our members, where they're going in terms of expansion or contraction or retirement even, because it's it's just as it's just as challenging for us as a co-op if, if someone rings up and says, actually, I've sold my cows and uh, my milk is ceasing next weekend. So so we need to know, and we absolutely, uh, we gather as much information from membership as we can. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, you know, McDonald's have a system in America whereby every McDonald's franchise is connected to one database. And every time every McDonald's restaurant sells a Big Mac, that all of that data is collated, and they know exactly how many buns and how many uh, uh, how much beef they're going to need to replace that. The whole thing is connected. They know exactly what their requirements are for the next day and going forward. And we're operating in a sort of a market where we really have no idea what's going on around us, and there is so much more that that could be done if we had the sort of leadership to do it. Oh, it's interesting if you look at a country like Ireland, where uh, I think it's about four million people, and they produce enough milk for forty million. Um, and the reason they don't have much of a problem is because they've got fantastically efficient stainless steel. And instead of having a product which you've got twenty-four hours to do something with it, you can they simply turn it into skin powder, uh, and then they can put it in the barn and wait and, until the right moment to sell it. Um, and we just don't have the access to that kind of modern efficient stainless steel to process and add value. I don't believe there is any value in liquid milk in a bulk tank. If you've got 10,000 litres of milk sticking in a bulk tank on a farm, it's practically worthless. If you turn it into into a commodity, you know, there's 127 different proteins and all kinds of other attributes to milk that you can turn that into. And you've then got a product which has a value and has a storage life. And that's where the future, I think, is going to be. I, I agree with that, Neil. And I think one of the things that um, we we need to remember is that whilst diversification on farm will help with that, to make those big efficiencies, we do need the big co-ops and the big operators to be able to do that. 
looking at diversification and that sort of stuff. When my grandfather started making cheese, there was roughly 120 farmhouse cheesemakers in the southwest of England, all making a small amount of products on farm. Today, I think there's probably um, half a dozen or so farmhouse cheesemakers. We make far more than the rest of them uh, used to do between us. But we've lost a lot of that diversification because of efficiency levels. And those processing efficiencies are real key things that we need to try and uh, ensure we get within the industry. There's another project that I've been working on, which I think is, is sort of maybe showing us a bit about where the future might go, which is automated farm gate processing. So it is now possible on farm to take the milk from the cows, put it, uh, pasteurize it, standardize it, pack it into litre cartons, shrink wrap it. And in the morning, the farmer just loads them into his refrigerated van and deliver them straight to supermarket. And that, I think, is massively uh, disruptive innovation, which could change the whole thing. We can cut the processor out completely. And, uh, you know, one of the supermarkets in Holland is actually uh, receiving milk direct from the farm farmers now, and it's working really, really well. The machine that puts the milk in the bottle also prints the label at the same time. So it tells you exactly uh, the time when that milk was produced and also um, two or three cows which produced the milk that went in that bottle. One of the big challenges with that, Neil, though, is going to be the fact that um, in today's market, our supermarkets are wielding so much power that they're just consolidating supply base time and time again. And the number of times you go in there and just find that, you know, there's a small, what um, they deem as a small processor, um, they're just not interested in dealing with that volume of individual suppliers. So again, that I, th- I understand where you're coming from. And, and I think there's, there's merit there, but it would require people working together to jointly market that product into those supermarkets. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You would have to have some, uh, it would have to be done through a co-op, but um, it would at least put the farmers back in control of the whole process. Yeah. That particular model may not be where we end up, but I think it's giving us a, a signpost as to uh, one way around where we're, where we're stuck at the moment. Coming, coming, back, um, coming back to the original thing about dairy farmers trying to take a bit more control of you know their milk price if you can each of you could sum it up in you know three bullet points what do you think uh, what do you think the next actions need to be or the actions of the dairy farmer yeah thanks uh, I, I would come back to the point that I think um, we need to learn however difficult it is and however counterintuitive it is we need as farmers to learn to work together we need to talk to each other we need to understand our market. Those are the key things that I believe without that, we aren't going to be able to go forward and deliver better value um, for the UK dairy industry. Robert? Yeah, I think I think it probably comes down to, and certainly the, the, the recent crisis has highlighted, this is understanding your milk buyer and really understanding how exposed they are to their particular market. And, and, just, and then looking at your own business and your own set of skills and thinking, you know, could I cope with a big milk price drop if if my my primary purchaser was to lose their market? You know what would happen. Look at uh, look at what might happen, and then evaluate the options and think. You know, is there anywhere else I could be sending my milk that better suits where I need to be as a business and the skill set that I've got as a dairy farmer? And and that may open up doors in terms of selling directly to consumers, be that you know through through retail uh, channels or or 
vending machines at the end of the farm lane. But but it's about really understanding better either side, you know, your own skills and and uh, the vulnerability and the exposure of your milk buyer, really. And uh, Neil, what do you think? What would your take home messages be? I, I think each farmer needs to look and see what um, local supply chains that they may be able to work with. Um, and I think all contracts should allow farmers to market a percentage of their milk somewhere else if they choose to. Uh, I don't think 100% supply contracts should be allowed. I think there are a lot of opportunities there for, for farmers to get into into local supply chains, whether it's vending machines or uh, or other ways of doing it. Uh, I think the other thing that always staggers me is whenever I go onto a farm, hardly anyone can tell me what their cost of production is. Um, and that really is a fundamental weakness because farmers don't, they, they what they really love is working with their cows. Um, and they're not actually that interested in sort of the the economics of it all the marketing but it's a, a really really fundamental issue that if you don't know your cost of production you don't really know where you're going or how you're going to get there so i think somehow we need to to change that and maybe we've got a new generation of decision makers coming through into farms that, that will be better at doing that uh, and hopefully better at cooperating with their neighbors Well, that's the first Milk Digest podcast done. I hope you've enjoyed it and a big thanks to our guest speakers today. I think some real clear messages have come out of our discussion. As much as it's easy to blame the processors, I think we have to accept that there is a bigger issue due to the complexity of the supply chain. As dairy farmers as well, we have to take the responsibility to make sure we know who our customer is and that we are supplying what they require. It's simply not good enough to be producing milk in the hope we have a buyer for it. That means better communication between the processors, and that really needs to start now. We may well see the cooperative model increasing in the future, as their joined-up approach means they have the ability to market the milk and tap into different supply chains, which is why they're weathering the coronavirus storm better than many. Farmers who are supplying a processor relying on one market outlet may also need to evaluate the risk in supplying all their milk to that processor and perhaps look at different marketing options. There's no doubt diversification can help spread the risk and will provide a solution for some in the future. We will be bringing you more podcasts in the coming week on a whole host of subject areas. So do please keep hosted and subscribe to the podcast. And feel free to send us your feedback by tweeting us at the RABDF. Don't forget also, if you are a dairy farmer that has been affected by the disruption caused by coronavirus, then please do take two minutes out of your day to fill in our survey at RABDF co.uk forward slash survey we need to keep feeding data on the state of the dairy sector back to government so your support on this is vital thanks for taking the time to listen do take care and have a good rest of the day bye now